Hello and welcome back to Evolving Prisons with me, Kagan Carey. Today I speak with Eddie Flanagan. Eddie has spent a total of 20 years in prisons in England for different offences, but he hasn't committed a crime in over 16 years now. He now does work in some prisons in England and today he speaks about the impact of the new psychoactive substances in prison known as SPICE. He also speaks about the importance of utilising people with lived experience in prisons and the importance of education. Eddie shares about how he feels education in prison is not as readily available now as it was when he was inside and the impact this can have on people. I hope you enjoy this episode. Eddie, you are an artist and done work for um, Police Scotland and you're also working in prisons as well. You spent 20 years in prison, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, in total, yeah. 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 Would, you, would you mind just telling us about that? So if we just start at the beginning of your life to, to where you are now. Sure. At the age of, up until the age of 16, I hadn't been in trouble. Uh, there'd been quite a lot going on in my life. Initially, I went to prison for three months. They were called detention centres back in the day. And they were just brutal places. They were run like an army unit. And basically, you were just brutalised. I was about 16, so I did three months detention centre. When I finished that, I was arrested at the gate. So I didn't actually get released and taken back to court. And I got a ball stool, which is also, they don't have those anymore. And in Ballstool, you serve six months to two years. Again, brutal places. They didn't really know what to do with young offenders in those days. So they, they, they tried to frighten them out of offending. But basically, they just brutalised people more. And then at the age of 19, I received four years YP. That was at the age of 19. But I was a bit of a handful. So as soon as I was sentenced, they made me into an adult, even though I was only 19. And uh, yeah, and then up to the age of 50, I served a total of 20 years. Longest sentence being six years and the shortest being about three months. And so I, I went through the system sort of like as a boy into manhood and I became institutionalized. I was a recidivist. A lot of my childhood trauma had gone into, turned into addiction rather than deal with the trauma. I had a lot of issues around addiction. And that tied me into criminality, basically. The addiction, not dealing with the issues underlying the offending. About the age of 30, I was diagnosed as dyslexic by a teacher in prison. Up to that point, I hadn't enjoyed education because uh, dyslexia wasn't diagnosed in those days. So I was ostracized and treated as not paying attention because they used to tell me, I'd say to me, like, you're very intelligent, but you're not paying attention. That's why you, all your work's all over the place. And back in then, but back in the day, it was 1970, 69, I started secondary school and finished it finished in 74. So I, I didn't have a nice experience. At the age of 13, I basically stopped going to school, hung about the streets with other uh, kids who were lost for whatever reason who didn't go to school. And I became a bit of a street urchin and got involved in crime. And as I say, then my addiction to alcohol and, and then drugs kept me tied into the criminality. Age of 30, I was diagnosed as dyslexic. And that sort of took the fear away from education. So I then got into education and I started to educate myself and I did social sciences. So that helped me better understand my, my upbringing. 
I particularly, I, I, I got into psychology in, in quite a big way and uh, that helped me to understand. Uh, I'm a great believer that Jung, who was a, a student of Freud, that a lot of our behaviour is it ties back to our childhood co cognitive stuff. And that, that, that was true in my case. So by the time I educated myself and I, under, I understood why I got to the, the place that I, I found myself in at that time. Yeah, so the education helped, but I, but I had to stop my addiction first before any of that could come to fruition. At the age of 49, I decided to turn my life around and I've been on that road ever since. I'm 64 now. So I'm, I'm up to this point and I'm involved, involved in um, social justice, restorative justice. And I use my life experiences as an I approach it as an artist so I can be subjective as an artist about the subject that I, uh, I'm talking about. And I find that quite easy, to be honest, because I've built a different life for myself now. I can view my old life and old behaviours and old patterns from a subjective point of view based on my education now and my life experiences but at the time I was just trying to deal with the chaos that I was creating in my life and I think that's true of quite a, quite a lot of young men who end up in prison 12% of our normal population is dyslexic about 5% are diagnosed if you go into prison that can be up to 50% and even though childhood trauma wasn't unique to me I, I, I found by talking to other people a lot of people have been through similar experiences to me in childhood I turned to alcohol and drugs to deal with the trauma and then became involved in the criminal justice system and once you're written off by society really there's not there's not many pathways out uh, I'm lucky I'm an artist and that proves to be my pathway out for me I use my art to then describe to other people what I went through um, and people like my story because it's a restorative uh, story now in my, in, my, in my older age so people like a happy ending they like my art, so I've combined the two. So I use my art really to try and pass on the lessons that I've learned. I'm 11 and a half years sober, 16 years away since my last offence. So it's been quite a journey the last 16 years. For 10 years, I worked as a street outreach worker in my local community. And that's really where I found myself. I, I now, I'm, I'm a Londoner, but I live in uh, Manchester now. So I did street outreach in Manchester, Manchester Piccadilly, worked with Barnabas, uh, fed the homeless, worked in, I live just outside of Manchester, so I worked with local churches in my area, day centres, started feeding the homeless in my area, started off a street feeding programme. And I did that for 10 years and, and I loved it. Uh, but then I was diagnosed with a couple of health conditions. I could no longer physically do that anymore so I, I really had to stop doing that uh, and so I then had to think of where I was going to go to next uh, I've been an artist all my life a portrait artist but my hands and feet became crippled about seven years ago so at the age of 60 because I couldn't hold a pen uh, and brushes anymore so I turned to digital technology because if you can touch the screen with your finger you, you can then create something so I studied that and uh, now that's what I do. I do um, digital content for social media sites. I do my own little conversation pieces, animations. And later on this year, I'm because I'm still studying because I want to be a filmmaker. So in June, July this year, I'm filming a short documentary with a film company who are like me, the, the, the people who have this company are in recovery. They're recovering alcoholics like myself. 
So we're making a short film to be shown at a recovery festival in Portsmouth in November at a cinema. And people from all over the country and elsewhere will come down and we will celebrate recovery and what it's like to be clean and sober. We've, st we've stuck with a broken system for so many years, it's become part of our culture. Um, there's no such thing as rehabilitation as far as the prison initiating it. Uh, rehabilitation has to come from the individual and it won't be found in the system. You have to find your rehabilitation despite the system, not because of the system. And prisons are a, a, a lot more chaotic now than they were back in the day when I was doing it. Uh, it's just, the landscape's changed. When I was doing it, uh, being naughty and getting into lots of trouble, all the prison staff who worked on the landing to like frontline staff, uh, they were all ex-military, I would say. 99% of the staff were ex-military, so they knew how to deal with men on leaving the services. They went into the prison service or the police service. That was quite a common occurrence. So they knew how to handle men, and it was containment, basically. Once you're labelled by society or the system as being no good, as broken, then everyone treats you like that whether it's on a conscious level or a subconscious level. You've been written off by society. The public just want a harsh environment for people to uh, suffer their incarceration because they think that's part of the deal. But unfortunately, if you go through the system and you're, you're treated like an animal, basically, um, a tame animal, but an animal, you don't have any say in it. And you get used to playing that role. You get used to being outside of the norm. So anything to, to me that represented society then or authority, I fought against. I was always in trouble in prison. I was always, yeah, tried to escape, got in lots of serious fights, um, was always involved in riots because I was angry. I, I needed to be angry at something in the system because it was treating me the way it was treating me. I, yeah, it, it was so catch 22. The anger just keeps rotating. Uh, yeah, and you think of yourself as lost and not being part of society. If you treat people like that inside, um, eventually they're going to have to be released. And if there are worse coming out than they were going in, that the people that suffer really is society. But society demands that we punish wrongdoers, and rightly so. I deserved every single day I spent in prison. <laughs> every single day. Uh, but now looking back with hindsight, I can see I was, I, I was really a product of the system. And I was born into failure, really. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm one of eight kids. My father wasn't around. He was an alcoholic. He wasn't a very nice man. So I come from a big family. As I say, I, I was born in 58. So my parents came to England. Irish wasn't, weren't treated uh, very well at then. There, there was a lot of prejudice against the Irish and, uh, and stuff like that. So I always felt part of a minority, even, even before I got into trouble. Because uh, I, I grew up, it was quite, I wouldn't say it was a poor background, but it, 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 if you've got eight kids, um, my mum had to raise eight kids on her own. So, yeah, so it, it was a poor existence. When I look back now, put that together with my dyslexia, feeling not part, part of, of the school system either, and then hanging about on the streets and uh, getting into trouble. I think a lot, a lot of young people who are lost and don't have... Um, my mum was great. I had an amazing mother. Uh, I've got an amazing family. I just didn't have any father figures there. So my father figure wasn't there. 
about the age of 10, I then, there was a, I had a surrogate father, uh, a prominent person in, in, in our community who, who turned out to be a paedophile and he abused me. So I didn't have a father figure. And then when I had abused me, then I found alcohol and drugs. And really, even if it could be anybody's story, it's, it's not really hard to see where that road was going to end. So, yeah. so I just use my education now, my experiences to talk about those times and hopefully then give people uh, an insight into maybe why people offend or end up in that life. And I use the signposts in my recovery to hopefully help other people in recovery because I still, even though I don't do the outreach work anymore, I still have friends who, who run rehab, so I still get people into rehabs now. Um, but really, apart from that, I don't really have, apart from that, getting people into rehabs, most of my life now is taken up with artwork and doing my stuff for schools and prisons later on this year and doing some films. And basically, I just want to educate, educate people based on my story. Brilliant. It's such a good thing to do. And um, just going back to what you were saying about how we treat people in prison, um, that's an area that I'm very passionate about is transforming the way we treat people in prison and transforming society's view of people in prison. Because I, I totally agree with you that, of course, punishment is one of the main aims of prison. But I can't help but think that taking away somebody's liberty and putting them in prison is punishment enough that when they're in prison, we need to treat them better. We need to treat them like humans because plenty of people in prison have never had anybody believe in them. And as you say, if you make somebody feel bad for long enough, they'll begin to feel bad, you know, and that'll be the identity that they give themselves. Mm -hmm. So we need to help people in prison and actually show them what's possible for them, as you say, rather than degrading them further. Well, if you brutalise people, as I said, when I went into de detention centre, so that must have been, oh, the vulnerable side of you. And before you know it, that shell then is all you know. You then become a rebel within the system, so you're punished even more. And because there's, there's a drug availability in prison, it's so easy. A lot of addictions are then reinforced. Mm -hmm. by the behaviour within the prison system and how you're treated. And you feel quite justified in being a rebel. You think, well, if, if society's going to treat me like this, I might as well act like this. And, uh, yeah, and before you know it, then, then you, you're a criminal, you're institutionalised, recidivism is part of your behaviour. And, mm -hmm. yeah, so it's just a vicious circle, and we need to break that circle. I remember you saying to me before um, an amazing quote. I'd heard a lot of quotes around this, but the one you told me I hadn't actually heard before, and I think it's incredible, is um, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. No, it was massive for me as well. It's such an insightful saying. Look around, see who your friends are. That's where your future is. It's incredible. And so I, I regurgitate that all the time now, and I've made a video using that title, Show Me Your Friends and I'll Show You Your Future, because it's true. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about prison, where um, a lot of people in prison are acting out. They're, they're taking drugs, they're getting involved in violence. Uh, I can't help but think that if you're in that environment, not everyone, but a lot of people will then start to conform to that behaviour and they'll maybe start to, to take drugs in prison. Um, I spoke to a GP actually, who told me that she had a client or a patient, obviously she didn't tell me any details about the person, but he was a patient. He went to prison 
he'd never taken drugs in his life and he came out and he was addicted to drugs. Yeah. Lots of people. Well, if you go in there, um, the drug, drug scene has changed slightly in prisons uh, because the drugs have changed. Most of the time when I was in prison, the main drug was cannabis. Everyone smoked cigarettes, but the main drug was cannabis. And then uh, in the 80s, they decided to bring in uh, drug testing amongst inmates. So up to, the, up to the point of drug testing people, if you went into prison, the, the, the drug that everybody took in there was cannabis. Now cannabis, it makes you quiet, it makes you subdued, uh, as in alcohol makes you loud and leery. So it was the unaccepted by staff. They knew everybody was puffing, but because nobody was acting out, you don't really act out on puff on, on cannabis. I mean, everyone's quite mellow. They brought in drug testing and a lot of people started to use heroin instead of cannabis for the simple reason. If you smoke cannabis, it would stay in your system for 28 days. So that once you smoke some for the next 28 days, if you were tested and you proved positive, you, you lost remission in them days. So, but if you took heroin and drunk a lot of water, it was only in your system for 24 hours. Wow. So a lot of people then stopped using cannabis and started using heroin because of the drug testing and losing remission. Uh, and then heroin became acceptable within the prison because a lot of people started doing it and they saw the reasoning behind it. Even though it's a cracked walk sense of, uh, well, that's for 28 days, I'll take heroin. It, it sounds ridiculous to say, say that. But if every man is thinking the same thing, if I smoke that cannabis now, I'm on offer for the next month. Whereas if I smoke a bit of heroin, and to be honest, heroin is the perfect prison drug. It, it really is. Um, now people use spice for two reasons. One, it's cheaper. And two, once you take spice, you're out of it all day long. So, so that's changed now. So it went from cannabis to heroin. And lots of travel started happening because of heroin. Because people, if, if you smoke cannabis, you could probably, probably exchange half ounce of tobacco, smoking tobacco, for one joint of cannabis. Now, most people can work that and maybe afford to get themselves a couple of joints for a weekend. Heroin was completely different. It, it, was, it, it was a lot more money involved. And the reaction to people on heroin is a lot different to the reaction of people on cannabis. So a lot of violence started creeping in because people were getting into debts and stuff like that. So that really changed the whole ethos of drug taking within the prison system. Nowadays, if, when I was in prison, you bartered to get your drug of choice. So you said, like, blah, blah, blah give me this, and they say, right, on payday, I want this back for that. Um, and, and it worked, it's, it, it was self-governing really, because cannabis and the reaction of people isn't extreme. Once heroin took over as the main drug, then a lot of violence crept into prisons. Uh, and if you're going to prison now, if, if I was going to prison now, to say for instance, I went into Brixton, I went on the wing, found out who had the drugs, they will get, you don't need anything. If I go into prison now and you've got some drugs, you will give me a bank details. You will give me a phone. I will phone my people on your phone. They will pay money into account. Then you will give me my drugs. Wow. So you don't need, you don't need it. 
as long as there's somebody on the outside who will pay money for you. Now, a lot of people can't do that because their families won't pay money in. So what they do is they want you to get into debt. So they go in, they let you have the drug, you'll get into debt, and they say, all right, then to pay for that debt, on your next visit, I'm going to get somebody to come and visit you. You bring in drugs for me. Yeah. It's, it's dangerous. It's accessible now. Mm -hmm. But every, every, a lot of people are taking spice now because it's so cheap. Plus, you can't detect it on drug tests. The reason spice is so prevalent within our prison systems now is it doesn't show up on drug tests. There isn't a drug test for, for, for spice. There is for cannabis, there is for heroin. Plus, it's a lot cheaper to get. And once you have a hit of spice, you're out of it for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's no surprise to me it's taken over. Uh, and when I was in prison, I could really do my own thing because I was an artist. I, I had my own income and I could really do my own thing. Um, if I was going to prison now, it'd be a lot different. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do my own thing. Uh, the landscape's changed. And the, the, the people who run the prisons, I'm not talking about the staff now. The, 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 there's a subculture within prison. You're confined within the, the walls of the prison and the staff are in charge as far as society goes. That's, it's not the case. The subculture in prison is the driving force. So whatever the subculture of the inmates is, is the dominant force. In my day, it would be the local villain, the hardest man or the toughest man or the man with the biggest reputation. His morals would then filter down through people within the system. So, and so it, in my day, it was a lot of older criminals. Now it's not, it's gangs. It's, there's a lot of radicalization. Uh, and the biggest gang in our prison system is the Muslim Brotherhood. If you took a liberty with somebody who, who, who wasn't all there back in my day, you'd be looked down upon. Now, if you go in there and you're weak, you're just preyed upon. There's, there's no self-governance. It's, yeah, the strongest survive. Yeah, that's the scary thing, isn't it? Um, prison yeah. definitely its definitely a deterrent in terms of um, if you know a little bit about what goes on in prisons, of course it's a deterrent because it sounds like a terrifying place. Um, I'd like to go back a little bit to what you said about spice. Um, I believe that I didn't realise that about the fact that there's no test for it, which of course it's going to be the drug of choice. But I, I do know that it has secondary effects and that spice can actually impact people around the person taking it. So I've I've heard of prison officers who actually suffer secondary effects of spice in prison. Yeah, it's it's a terrible drug. Um, thank God, I, I mean, I, I'm clean, clean and sober and away from that life now. But a, a lot of people who I still know who used to be heroin addicts are now spice addicts. When they leave prison, they stay with the spice when they go out. and. You, the, the side effects of spice are terrible, terrible. The, the, the impact it has on people's mental health is far way and beyond any other drug that I've experienced. And I've been around drugs most of my life. Yeah, wow. spice is, is a terrible, terrible drug. It really does turn the person into a zombie. You're very vulnerable when you're on spice as well. So then other people will then use you to, for their nefarious end. You'll never ever stop drugs, and even if they, if tomorrow they find a test for spice, it still won't stop it. Mm -hmm. it it's yeah. like people in prison are ahead of the game, aren't they? When when we find a, a way for testing something, it's it seems like they they're on to the next thing that isn't yet detectable. Yeah, 
Yeah. And if you're part of a subculture, you, you, you're, you have to play by that subculture's rules. Because even though society thinks they're in charge of prisons, they're not. The prisons are in charge of prisons. It was different in my day. There was no female workers when I did 99% of the time I served inside. As I said, cannabis was the main drug. Heroin did come in for the last sort of like 10, 15 years of, of when I was doing sentences. But since I've stopped, Spice has then overtaken both of those drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk to you just about what you'd said there about, um, well, about female officers in prisons, but also you saying that when you were in prison, it, it didn't work. The prison didn't work as rehabilitation. I'd, I'd like to know your thoughts now in terms of um, prisons now. From, from my own research, I've, I've spoken with female prison officers. I personally think it's a good thing that we've moved away from the military style prisons and obviously this is coming from somebody who's never served a prison sentence but I think it's good because I think it will be conducive to actually um, making prisons a place of rehabilitation um, but tell me your thoughts because you obviously have experience of the prison system you now work in them I'd love to know your thoughts on that uh, no uh, in fact I, I think it's, it'd be harder to rehabilitate yourself now than it was in my day for sure uh, society in the last especially in the last 15, 20 years, uh, we've, we've moved on. We knew, we know, as, as in the rest of society, that females were eventually going to work in prisons as officers, frontline staff, as I call them, landing staff. It changed at the same time that women police uh, prison officers uh, started to go on the land. Is, it changed the dynamics and they lost the discipline. The only thing that was keeping it together was the discipline of the staff and the fact that it was militarised and they knew how to handle men. There was a definite line drawn in the sand and both sides knew it. Once that started to change, once it became less disciplined, the, the, the male members of staff started acting differently in front of the women because they had women colleagues instead of male colleagues. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to say this without sounding sexist, to me, it was inevitable that we were going to get uh, women uh, members of staff, but as soon as they appeared on the scene, the prison system changed for the worse. Not because of the women, because of the status quo was being changed. The staff started acting differently towards the inmates because there was female involved and there was egos involved and maybe they thought, oh, they're the weaker sex, I have to stand up for them. So that changed the dynamics between the, the male staff members and the prisoners. At the same time that women came in, the drug testing came in. So you had a whole series of, of events. You had drug testing came in. Women became frontline members of staff. And a lot of the military men didn't like it and started to leave. So as they started to leave, because back then, if you, if you want to be a prison officer, you went, you took a test. And then through, through that process, they weeded out the people that were suitable to be staff members or not. Do you know now there's no test for staff? If 20 people put in to become prison officers, there's no filtering system like they used to do before. You will get the job unless you prove yourself to be incapable of doing the job, which is different to getting a job because you've stood up to stringent training. You're getting people going straight from college now as members of staff on landings and that it's cannon fodder 
I'm so glad I, I'm not naughty anymore because I, one, because I, I like the life I live now, but I wouldn't like to negotiate the prison system as it is, as it is now. It's broken beyond repair as far as I'm concerned. And I do understand it because the public want you, want you to be pub, uh, punished if you're in prison. So for, as far as the public is, is concerned, the harsher, the better. But the harsher you are on inmates, the more they're going to react when they're released. So we're getting people going in now and they're just lost in the system. They become addicted to drugs. They become part of a bigger criminal fraternity. And uh, I, I think that's evident on our streets. Uh, uh, I'm not just saying it's the radic radicalization. I mean, it's not just that. It's a whole lot of different things coming together. I think once women came in, the, the men's staff started acting differently. The drug testing was changed. So people started using harder drugs. Um, the caliber of people going into the prison service weren't best suited to it, but because they needed the staff, all the older ex-service left. And now you, you can fast track, if you've got a degree now, you can fast track into the management of prison but you know nothing about the prison. You've never been on a landing. You've never dealt with inmates. You've never dealt with fights and drug issues and, and stuff like that. So staff have got no control now. Staff are bullied, basically. If, you, if I go into prison now, I don't need money. I can get drugs. I can take drugs openly. The staff numbers have gone down so much that, uh, that the staffing levels are crazy. And unfortunately, I think it's only going to change once members of staff start being murdered and it will happen. I know this sounds really before long, we are going to have people, uh, people have tried to kill staff in the past. That was based on personal relationships breaking down. Um, now staff are targeted for different reasons. Uh, because if the inmates die, nobody really cares. That's not going to change anything. It's been happening ever since I've been part of the prison uh, uh, culture. Uh, and it's scary. It's scary. Yeah, we we need to to change a lot, don't we? We um certainly. Yeah. I know that there are people doing um unlocked graduates, for example. I know that they are doing their own kind of training with prison officers, but on the whole, in the United Kingdom, training for prison officers is completely inadequate, and their it's budgets rubbish. their budgets being cut. Um, yeah. they're doing what they can with the money they've got. I think some of the things we can do is that it's quaintly called lived experience. That means people that have been naughty in the past and are, like myself who are, are no longer involved in that lifestyle, um, they're asking our opinions a lot more now. But that's only within the system, not, at the, not the outside culture of society, but within the prison system, people are looking towards people like me. Um, for instance, there's a guy called Gethin Jones, who's a friend of mine and who, who actually trains staff. He goes into prisons and he trains the staff as part of their training before they go onto the landings and stuff. Now, Gethin is like myself, an ex-defender who, who served time inside. He's a recovering heroin addict. So, and he goes in there and, and that's, um, that's amazing. And in fact, seeing one of Gethin's videos was very instrumental in me finding my path that, that, that I'm on now. So I think that's very important. So I think that's one good thing, utilizing people of lived experience to then help try to heal the system. Uh, I think honesty 
we've got to be honest about what's happening in our prisons and that's never going to happen. The prison authorities are never going to allow what's really happening in our prisons to, to come out into the open outside um, because everything's dealt with internally because the government know how bad things are in there. But we're, we're cutting down on staff, we're cutting down on funds, uh, we can see it on our landings. So we're, we're just exacerbating the situation because we keep making cuts. We need to bring the staffing levels back up. We need to have an adequate training facilities. We need to have a system where people apply to be prison officers do not get their job automatically. You, if you're shown up during the training to be weak in certain areas and you would have been rejected from that in the past of becoming a prison officer, that doesn't happen anymore. You get six weeks training, you go into a prison, There'll probably be two members of staff in the landing with about 100 people on it. Before, because they were very militarily run, they had each other's backs. They don't anymore. The staff are scared. There's young women going in there that are scared of their surroundings uh, because it must seem, oh, I'll go and work in prisons. It's a job for life. It's not a great salary, but it's not, it's not a bad salary. I think it's about 22 grand. They, they, they start on and in today's work environment, a lot of people are going to go for that. Get in there, realize that the, the, the above, the, yeah, the, the, they're not coping, so they lose a lot of staff. The ex discipline, the ex military men are leaving because the new people coming in are making their job harder, not easier. They've lost control on the landings. A drug, drug use used to be hidden when I was serving now. It's not so hidden now because they don't have the staff members or the resources to deal with the drug issues that are happening within our prison service. And uh, yeah, it's easily it's easier to corrupt somebody if they're weak. If you've got an ex man, if you've got a man who's spent thirty years in the military and then goes into prisons, he he knows how to deal with men. If you're twenty five, you're straight out of um, university, and really. <laughs> it's uh yeah it's, it, we're just watering down whatever resources we had and unfortunately that, that there, there isn't an easy answer we need to change the, the, the drug uh the way we deal with drugs within the prison system but that's not going to happen we we're not we, we, say for instance as a society portugal realized once they decriminalized drugs and made it a health issue and it transformed their society and then that filtered through to their prison system because the society itself started dealing with drugs and addicts differently. Whilst society in general treats addicts in a certain way, then you put them into prison and their behaviour isn't checked in the slightest. In fact, like we, we said earlier, you can go into prison without a drug issue and you, you will pick up a drug issue in there because you're just locked up all the time now. They put... They put um, TVs in cells and everyone's going, oh, that's it, they're being spoiled. But the thing is, now that people have got TVs in the cell, they don't unlock them for anything. They don't unlock them for association. They don't unlock them for education. They've got private spend, so they don't need to work within the prison system because in my experience, I've worked, I work with police services, I work with probation, prison service, I do stuff for way out TV, I, I, I've got stuff going out in there, so it's shown on in prison cells, some of my stuff. Um, 
but it's just, just lip service. When I actually worked for the probation department, they wanted they only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. They they said, to me, "Oh, come work with us," and I said, "Yeah, I've got yeah, great. I, I will have an impact." And what I I thought were the two major issues that needed to be addressed within the probation department, they didn't want to talk about because one was, was drugs and the way we dealt with people in drugs. And the second thing was a radicalization because they're the two biggest issues within our prison system. Um, for people frightened to say anything to, about anything to do with any religion whatsoever, it's politically incorrect. Um, I don't have an ax to grind. I, I'm not a religious person. I don't have a faith. So uh, I, I don't know if one, one religion's better than the other. All I know is, if you ask me the two major issues within our prison systems, it's the radicalization of people when they go in there now and the drugs and the, and the availability of drugs. So unless we change those two, two things, it doesn't matter how many staff we've got, which we haven't. I know it's a very pessimistic outlook for me, but it's gonna get worse. We need to change our thinking. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. And you'd said about education and people not getting out for education and that I want to talk to you about that and also kind of link it back to dyslexia. Um, are people in prison from the prisons you're working in and what you're seeing, are they not getting access to the education they should be? No, uh, they haven't got the staff. In order for an inmate to go on to education, one, the education department needs, needs to be staffed. And two, you need to have the members of staff to be able to take people from their cells to the education department. Now, if the staff numbers are going down and they've now got TVs in their cells, they can spend their private cash. There's no focus on education. The inmates don't want to do it because they're badly paid if they, if they do education. Plus, they hardly ever get to it because there's not enough staff members to take them over to the education department because they've cut down on the staff. So really, education, it, I, I, I was lucky. I, I, I learned so much. Once my dyslexia was diagnosed and I, I learned coping strategies, I then went on to further ad, adult education. And that was what, that, that was the turning point for me. If I was in prison now, even if I'm diagnosed as dyslexic, which I probably wouldn't be, and I wanted to go to education, I should say I, education, but you, you can't get the education now. You don't have access to it. I did. Luckily, I did, and it saved my life. Um, you don't have access to it now. So we really, really need to think about how, how education is delivered within the prison system because it's not being delivered. The, the, the people that do do it are amazing. I loved education for two reasons. One, because I was learning and I, I, just, I just enjoyed that. But, and two was I liked being around the teachers because they treated, diff, treated me differently to the way disciplined staff treated me. Because let's face it, if, if you're a member of staff and all you've got all day long is the worst percent of the population going through your hands, pulling strokes, um, it's going to make you jaded. So even if you wanted to help them, you can't. That must be so discouraging. That must be so demoralising to go into work, see all this stuff going on, knowing that there's no way of rectifying it. Uh, and that, yeah. And as I say, the discipline of the staff, they've lost control now. 
that made it a better environment when it was all ex-military and stuff. I know it sounds silly because you think, oh, surely as an inmate, you, you, you'd prefer it as it is nowadays where you get away with all this stuff. Well, if you get away with all that stuff, you're just going back to prison because you ain't changing your behaviour. So do you think um, just what you'd said about dyslexia there and not being diagnosed now, do you feel that people who have dyslexia in prisons aren't actually getting diagnosed as having it just now? No, no, no of course they're not. No, no, no they're not. Uh, I, I was lucky a teacher recognised because I'm also a musician and I, I used to go and get my art supplies. And back in them days, they had instruments in the education department. So I learned to play guitar. And I was writing the lyrics out to a song and the teacher noticed them and said, I think you're dyslexic. Now, if I hadn't been in that education department, I hadn't been playing guitar and he happened to notice my lyrics. So it was by chance my dyslexia was diagnosed. Uh, it would have no chance now because I wouldn't be getting to education because there isn't the staffing levels in order to take me over there. Um, I think what's really important is, uh, and maybe a glimmer I hope, is that people like me now are being used within the prison system. And so people can see examples of people that have made it out. Uh, I had examples, um, but my examples came in book form. I, I, I paid for my own education. Now you don't have to do that. If I was going to prison, I'd say to you, right, whilst you're in prison, why don't you try doing this correspondence course? There's funding available for it. When you come out, Come and work with us, work on our projects, go to part-time college for, for whatever you're learning within the creative process, whether that's a sound engineer, an artist, uh, an actor, whatever it is, and use that vehicle of the creative process along with mentorship to teach them skills to survive outside of criminality. So if you're surrounding them with, with positive people in a positive workspace, it is a pathway out, it's something they can see. And if they've seen that you've done that yourself, that's the most important, we need to see it being done in order. I had inspirations from books. Then as society, as uh, we got the World Wide Web and stuff and social media came into it, and then uh, I, I got into digital technology. So I'm surrounded now by creative people. I, I still had to learn how to be part of that community not just on an educational basis, but in my behaviour. I can't behave now like I used to behave in my criminality. I don't use the same language. I, uh, yeah, my attitude is different. All these things we learn through experience. You're, you're surrounded by males who, who, who act correctly, where, where bad language isn't accepted. All those things, it's a completely different mindset. It's a completely different attitude. And that's basically what you need because it, it, our recovery is, is threefold as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's mental, it's physical, and it's emotional. We have to tend to all three parts of that. Brilliant, Eddie. Um, so just to finish up, can you just tell us what it is that you actually do in prisons? What work you're doing in there just now? At the moment, for prison TV, it's called Way Out TV, I've made some short animations that they show to prisoners in their cells, they turn, turn on the TV on this channel, and it's got my story, how I made out of criminality. So straight away they know that somebody's made it out. People, I, I have credibility within the prison system, not for what I'm doing now, for the good stuff I'm doing, but because of the bad stuff. For the people in prison, that gives me credibility, not the good stuff, but if that's enough to open the door, 
people say, oh, I listen to him because he's been in prison. So I'll, I'll give him five minutes. That's all I need. My, my past opens doors because I'm no longer naughty. If that opens the doors to get me into prisons, to show them people that there is a way out, if you do this and this and this, it can lead to that. That is a practical example. Otherwise, rehabilitation is just a word that's bandied about. It, it, it has a place, but it's, it's not really anything tangible for somebody who's within that, that lifestyle to see a, a, a way out of that criminality. We have to show pathways out. So, yeah, so that's why I've set up my company, because I want people to see my stuff, say, this guy's done it. I talk about um, my addiction. I talk about my dyslexia. I talk about my being abused as a, a child and how that set me up for addiction. And, uh, yeah, so hopefully pe people will see just by my experience that it's possible. That will initially get their, their, their attention. Um, so, really, then it's having them... Once you're released from, that's the biggie. When you're released from prison, you end up with about 50 quid, nowhere to stay. You're going to hang about with the people you've just come out of prison with. You're just going back into the same old environment. So it's being released into something new. That is critical. That is critical. And maybe people like myself and Gethin, we, we, we can show that there is a way out, a pathway out. Fantastic, Eddie. Um, so last thing, where can people find um, your work online? If you go onto YouTube and you type in Ed the Head, Ed E double D, Ed the Head Flanagan, F L A N A G A N, Ed the Head Flanagan on YouTube, there's about 40 animations I've done there, no longer than three minutes each, and they're all about issues around my offending and my pathway out. So, yeah, YouTube, Ed the Head Flanagan, you'll see my work. really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. My key takeaways are that there is currently no way to test whether a person in prison has taken spice. It can cause serious mental health problems for the person taking it, and it can cause psychotic episodes. It can also cause prison staff who are exposed to the fumes to fall ill. Lack of staff in prisons means people in prison potentially aren't getting as much access to education as they used to. Education is one of the main routes known to help people desist from crime so this is concerning. People potentially aren't getting diagnosed for dyslexia like they used to because of the lack of education being offered, as a number of people would have been diagnosed through writing or reading with an education. I'd be very grateful if you could please rate this podcast on whatever platform you listen to, and please reach out to me at evolvingprisons.com if you have any questions.